When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So Derek Kushner is 36 years old. He has no formal diplomatic training or government experience. If he cannot handle his job, he needs to turn his security clearance and go back to doing real estate in, in New York City. Jared Kushner is a real estate developer. He's 36 years old. He has no experience dealing with foreign governments. This is a guy who negotiates rent. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says the United States is the highest tax nation in the world, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And that's not even close to true. The U.S. is 71 out of 191 countries, according to the IMF. Far from being the highest, the U.S. isn't even highly taxed. We're an extremely low-tax country. What Trump keeps saying, and said again today on Twitter on his way to tell more lies in North Dakota, isn't just inaccurate or misleading or a myth or a distortion or a matter of opinion. Saying the U.S. is the highest tax country is the opposite of what we know and he knows to be true. It's a deliberate fabrication, a deception, a conscious knowing lie told in defiance of and opposition to objective fact. It's fake news. It's fiction. It's a fraud. It's an invention. It's total baloney. But Trump keeps repeating it. So what do we do about it? Honestly, I don't know, because unlike some liars, Donald Trump is impervious to the truth. He doesn't care when his lies are called out. He just keeps spreading them. There are other dishonest people in politics. There's no one else as shameless as Donald Trump. But one thing we can do is to stop letting him go on it. Trump told this lie again in an interview with Gerald Baker, the editor of the Wall Street Journal in July. Baker let it slide. And here's one of the headlines about Trump's tweet today. From CNBC, Trump calls America the highest tax nation in the world. Here's how the U.S. actually compares. Sorry, CNBC, that's not good enough. The word is lying. It's what Donald Trump is doing today, just like every other day. Coming up on the show... Jared Kushner's big problem. It's not the special prosecutor. Well, not just the special prosecutor. It's a skyscraper on Fifth Avenue with a mortgage coming due. I'll be back in a moment for a return visit with Caleb Melby of Bloomberg News right after this. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, 
You'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. I'm joined in the studio today by Caleb Melby of Bloomberg. He is the author with David Koshnevsky of an amazing story about the Kushner family's struggles with an office building. The office building is at 666 Fifth Avenue. If you were superstitious, you might not buy a building with the number 666. You might want to avoid that one, yeah. So this building has turned into an albatross for the Kushner family and for for Jared Kushner. How did it happen? How did they end up buying it and what's gone wrong? So uh, uh, Charlie Kushner, Jared's father, got out of prison in 2006, summer of 2006. And uh, he and Jared jointly decided that um, it was time for the family to make a fresh start. They had primarily based their business in New Jersey, and they wanted a new flagship building in Manhattan. It was, as we now know, with the benefit of hindsight, um, a terrible time to buy a building in Manhattan. Uh, Prices were doubling. People thought prices were going to go up forever. So they made a really aggressive offer. Nobody really knew who they were. Nobody was really particularly happy about taking a bet on a guy who was a felon now. Um, so th- so they needed an aggressive offer. So they found this 41-story office building and offered $1.8 billion on it, uh, only put about $50 million down. So that's a, a small percentage down. Well, let me, let me stop you right there with a couple questions. Yeah. First, $1.8 billion. I mean, is that close to a record for an office building that, in New York? That, that was a record at the time. Yeah. And if you were to look at the building, if you were to be walking down Fifth Avenue past it, you'd ask yourself, why? Why does this building deserve a record? And it, it's location, it's, location. It, yes. It's uh, like across from I know that block. I mean, it's right on Fifth Avenue. It's right across the NBA store used to be in that yep. building for people who ever had kids interested in basketball who wanted souvenirs. And it's right by the Museum of Modern Art. I yep. mean, it's primo location. It's an absolutely awesome location for sure. But yeah, they they bought it for a hefty price, way too much debt than um the crisis happened. The financial crisis happened. And um, by 2011, they needed to refinance the debt. They had to sell off the stores, like where the NBA store and everything else was, the most valuable parts. And as we go throughout time, they sold half of the office space, all of the stores, but they're still left with half of a $1.2 billion mortgage after all of that. And, and they put in, I mean, just in case readers don't know how uh, commercial real estate works, I certainly don't know much about it. You can $50 million, that's uh, less than 3% of $1.8 billion. You can buy a, a building with that little down? <laughs> I think I think you can actually probably still pull that off in some corners today. But yeah, that, that just gives you an idea of just how aggressive and frothy a market it was. The banks were more than happy to put up more than 95% of the capital for them. And, and yeah, they, they're just, it's kind of representative of this, this time in New York history when Everybody just had such optimism. Yeah. So they wanted to do this super high-profile deal. Is there a little bit of the outer borough syndrome here? I mean, Donald Trump is a developer, you know, whose dad had all these buildings in Queens and Brooklyn who, you know, wanted to make it in Manhattan and play with the 
big boys, and that psychology explains a lot Donald Trump. Are the Kushners, these New Jersey developers, subject to the uh, same psychological phenomenon? Uh, At the time, you probably could have argued that they were. I mean, Jared's trajectory throughout business actually mirrors Donald's a lot. Donald came from Queens, went into Manhattan. Jared went from New Jersey and came into Manhattan. Um, That's why he's the son Donald Trump never had. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, Donald did most, most of his developing and he did it in condo buildings. So you built a tower, you sold it off, you recouped your cash, and you were done. What's different about uh, what Jared did was they they bought a building that already existed and really had financials that did not support the amount of debt they put on there. It was around the same time that he bought the Observer newspaper, which, um, you know... Also brilliantly run into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you, so you did get the sense that between the building and the Observer, they, they were trying to buy entree uh, in, into the, the New York elite, as it were. And, and in many ways, it, it worked, right? Like, he, he talks with Rupert Murdoch. Um, he and Ivanka became social friends with Rupert's then wife, Wendy Dang, and um, all sorts of other people that they were able to kind of gain access to through Ivanka's star power and Jared as the young uh, real estate entrepreneur in the city. Yeah, so they get into trouble because they overpaid and they're losing money on an annual basis building and they've got this huge debt overhang. I mean, first question before you get into what they did and looking for all these foreign investors to bail them out, why can't you just walk away? You only put up $50 million in the first place. You've got a billion-dollar mortgage. If you, After the financial crisis, a lot of homeowners who got into that kind of trouble had negative equity, and they said bye-bye. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, by by the time they, they refinanced the debt in 2011, it, it was clear through that process that they wanted to hold on to the building. Mm. It, it wasn't something they wanted to get rid of. I, I, I mean, you make a big splash in New York having to give it up a few years later wouldn't look great. And, and now, going forward, we can see that they're trying to moonshot it again. If you pay $1.8 billion for a building, that was a huge leap of faith. And now they want to do that again by literally knocking the tower down and building a bigger, more expensive one in, in its place. But but yeah, selling doesn't seem... We got to talk to the company president for the story. He said, uh, a guy by the name of Laurent Morali, he said, we have plenty of contingency plans for the building. Selling was was not something that was discussed. That doesn't mean it's not being considered. But can't but, you default? I mean, if you have that little equity in a building, Donald Trump certainly did on <laughs> when he went through bankruptcy on a lot of his buildings. It doesn't they don't it doesn't involve all of your personal assets, presumably. Yeah, pr- presumably not. Uh, it, they, they could default um, some back of the envelope math would suggest they'd be about $200 million underwater on their half of the mortgage if they were to do that. We don't get to see all the guarantees, get, get to see the language on all the guarantees of the refinancing agreement. Um, but there there is a possibility that the lenders could have some capacity to go up after other assets in some scenarios, given the the names of the guarantees we see on that refinancing agreement. So so it, it could pose trouble for them, certainly. Right. So back to the story. What what are the they're they're starting to get in trouble. The building's worth less than they paid for it. They've got this plan after buying the most expensive building in New York to knock it down because it's not the kind of office building people want now and it doesn't have the kind of retail you can make as much money with. So what are they what are they actually trying to do? Are they trying to bring in 
foreign investors just to make their mortgage payment? Or are they trying to bring in foreign investors for this even more expensive plan to start over? So so the, the one that's gotten the most attention is one where you bring in foreign investors to finance the construction of a brand new building in its place, which would include enough funds to pay off their current lenders. It's also totally possible that they could find a way to refinance the building, uh, find somebody to, you, you know, take on that debt in in place of their current lenders at different rates or uh, maybe with some more concessions. Um, but yeah, so one of the things we reported for the first time in this story was uh, in addition um, to China and Qatar, which had been previously reported, um, the Kushner companies looked uh, to France Israel, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, to try and find somebody to do a deal with them on on this building. And I, I, I mean, we talked about this a bit um, after the Anbang deal, but it's just... You were on the show with Virginia when, yes. when this Chinese investment company, Anbang, was seemed close to making the investment and then... Pulled out. They pulled out. And, and I mean, the numbers are just so eye-popping. A $4 billion construction loan. They've sold all the stores at the base of the building, so they'd need to buy those back. That alone would be like a billion dollars just for the rights to raise the building and put something else there. And then they want a five-story retail mall. On top of that, a hotel. On top of that, condos that would sell for, um, by one estimate, $9,000 per square foot, a price we haven't seen. But you have years of collecting no no rents, you're yeah. paying taxes, you've got a hole in the ground, and, you, and the amount you're losing is it can be vast. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the president of the company, the Rent Morale, told us um, that plan is ambitious and creative. Um, but when we talked to people in the real estate community, people who are familiar with Kushner Companies and Vernado, their co-owners in the building, they said, look, you can't expect any return in the short term, the medium term on that building. Even a return in the long term would be speculative. So you can't really look at it as an investment to make money. And for that reason, the reason why they're looking abroad for investors is for that reason, you're not going to find U.S. investors who are interested in that proposition, which is likely why we saw companies like Anbang, which was a company that was buying up a lot of prestige U.S. real estate, trying to buy in. Companies in that country are trying to get capital out of China into the U.S. and other jurisdictions. Um, and the other possibility is you're looking for somebody who's not price sensitive at all, but loves the idea of having their name on some big, shiny New York skyscraper. Or somebody that has a political reason for making the investment. I mean, the, the conflict of interest for Jared Kushner here is staggering. It's not just that his father-in-law is the president and has interests that touch and relate to each of these countries he's dealing with as possible investors every day of the week. It's that he personally has been appointed formally or informally by his father-in-law to negotiate peace in the Middle East, to deal with issues of China. How has he, I mean, is he made, he's made some gesture towards divestment, but what's, how's he handling this conflict of interest? Yeah. So, um, Up until he joined the White House in January 2017, he was part of these conversations to try and find a deal for the building. So after Trump's already been elected, but before he's sworn in, Jared is going to dinners with the Chinese meetings. And talk about the Russians for a minute, because some people think that when he had this meeting with Ambassador Kislyak in Washington, 
this subject was on the agenda. Right. So um, in December 2016, around the same time they were in discussions with An Bong, Jared had a meeting with uh, not just Kislyak, but um, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Sergei Gorkov, who uh, runs um, Putin-controlled um, investment bank in Russia, VEB. I'm not going to try and pronounce the <laughs> the, the Russian name. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so that was December 2016. And uh, so both Kislyak and Putin's spokesman, um, Dmitry Peskov, say that they were talking business with Jared during during those meetings and that um, he was there in his role as CEO of Kushner Companies. Jared says the exact opposite. I didn't mix business and my public role. And um, I was there as a representative of the incoming Trump government. Would he have been, if if they're telling the truth and he's not, would he have been breaking the law or merely ethical guidelines? I, it's my understanding that that would just be ethical guidelines. Because um, it's a transition. Yeah, it's, it's a transition. Um, and the concern would be, of course, that VB is currently under U.S. sanction. And then if you're talking about concerns about conflict of interest to have a have a company that's currently under U.S. sanction that you could also potentially do business with were they not under U.S. sanction is, I think, where most of that concern is generated when I talk to people in the ethics community. Right. So if you've got one of these family real estate businesses and you theoretically divest, what does that mean? You give your share of it back to other people in your family? You just give it to them? Do they give it back to you when you leave government? <laughs> in Jared's case, that's that's mostly true. Yeah, he sold his interest in his family company's LLCs mostly back to family members. And uh, so they cashed him out, essentially. They could have cashed him out. They could they could have issued um, him a promissory note, which is promised to pay cash sometime in the future for the interest. Backed by the investments. Yes, exactly. Um, so we don't know exactly how, how that took place. But we we do know that he divested formally from the LLC that owns his stake in 666 Fifth Avenue and other assets. But this isn't like selling your stock and putting the assets in a blind trust that you don't control. I mean, the, the it's his family, right? right? And he stands to inherit this money at some point when his, his father passed away. And you've got to think he can get that stake back anytime he wants when he leaves. Presumably, yes. And and even if that's not the case, I mean, it's just an incredibly close-knit family. Uh, he loves his father dearly. They've been doing business together forever. So the idea that this sort of formal bright line created by the divestment is is truly that, given those facts on the ground, is is questionable, definitely. Do we think he's dealing with the, 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 the financial divestment is one thing. The other question is whether he does deal with these issues in any way or how he deals with them when they're relevant people in the, in the room. Do we have any evidence that he has done any family business since the inauguration? No. Yeah. No. Um, and, uh, yeah, they the family business and uh, Jared Jared's White House um, staff they seem to be incredibly cautious about keeping keeping that line of separation there. Um, but if Jared and Ivanka decide this isn't so much fun anymore, they really don't like the Dreamers protesting outside their their house in Calorama. They're going to move back to New York and not be officially connected with the administration. He could go right back to work for his dad, and that's presumably what he would. Do. 
do, yeah. So um, the Kushners have some other um, real estate assets I wanted to ask you about. I mean, we're here in downtown Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, The other signature deals Jared has done have all been surrounding us here. There's in in Dumbo, this whole series of buildings that used to be owned by the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mm -hmm. which he's been developing, I think mostly as office space. And then he bought... Some really expensive, got to be the most expensive deal in Gowanus, which is this super polluted canal, but it's yeah. now becoming a hipster neighborhood about a mile from where we're sitting. What's he, what's he up to in Brooklyn? Yeah, so um, ever since they bought 666, they've continued pushing into New York, um, both Manhattan and Brooklyn. And uh, they're, they're, they're most comfortable with office, definitely. So when they bought those Jehovah's Witnesses buildings, it was six of them for $375 million. Uh, they did that deal with um, A.B. Rosen's RFR. And that was a big deal back in 2013, I believe. And uh, what's interesting there is all they gained control of five of those buildings immediately. One of them wasn't due to come to the Kushner RFR partnership until later this year. And one of the things we reported in our story is that the Kushners actually had discussions to get out of that building, a 30-story hotel that would have been part of that whole group. And they say they're just not interested in it anymore. And then the other one. Does is, that mean they don't have the cash to do it? Um, we, we don't, we don't know that. And they, they certainly would, would deny that they, they, they say we're just not interested in that hotel anymore. Um, same building it was when they bought it back in 2013. But does it make it look to you like the, the company or the family is cash strapped? I mean, are they doing things that real estate developers do when they're really close to the edge? Yeah, so we report a trend of a few things that they're doing across their real estate empire right now that that could be interpreted that way. The first is on some of their more successful buildings, they're pulling cash out of them. They're taking big loans and using a fraction of those loans to return cash to themselves. So that's happened at the New York Times building. Yeah, they, they bought into the old New York Times building in Times Square, not the fancy new one. Yes, yeah. correct. Um, and then we see them, yeah, just kind of retrenching in their expansion plans like that hotel in Dumbo and actually another building down in Wall Street. Um, it was reported right after we published our story um, that they were selling their stake in that back to their partners as well. There was a story in the New York Times Magazine a few months ago about some residential properties they have that yeah. I think some are in Maryland, some are maybe in the, in the Midwest somewhere. And it was a brutal story. Basically, they're squeezing the crap out of former tenants. They're coming, and these are, you know, lower middle class housing, you know, people who are kind of struggling to make it, who moved out in many cases, had stories that sounded like they did nothing wrong, but the equivalent of like not giving their security deposit back or suing them for, you know, rent that they arguably didn't owe. And it looked like either this was a company that was just really mean or a company that might be a little desperate and need cash. Do you think those things are connected to what's going on with 666 Fifth Avenue? Um, it could be or it couldn't be. If you're if you're buying some of those big working class, middle class developments and you want to make a return on your investment, you're going to be looking for ways to make it more profitable than it was under the current owners. So, so that could be a strategy undertaken by anyone regardless of their financial position. Um, It's also true that before they made this foray into Manhattan and Brooklyn, that's just 
how how they made money was running these these suburban garden apartment complexes in New Jersey and Maryland. So so for them, that's kind of old hat. That's like the Fred Trump housing in Queens. That's exactly. that is the old family business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And speaking of Trump, you mentioned a development called Trump Bay Street. Yeah. So this is something in which Trump and the Kushners have, were partners going way back. What's the story with that? Yeah. So this was um, a, a luxury building they built very near to the waterfront in Jersey City. Um, that's right across the Hudson River from Manhattan. Great views of of the Manhattan skyline. And um, b- back when they were building it, it was decided that it, it could help draw investment with the Trump name on it, which has been the Trump business plan for a long time now. But uh, that was a building that was built... Um, with a form of investment called EB-5. And that's where foreign investors can put up, say, $500,000 for a project that promises to create jobs, um, so construction jobs in this case. And uh, then uh, you can get a green card and you can be fast-tracked to get a visa as well. And Trump didn't start this program, obviously, but it's not part of his uh, anti-immigration push. He's okay with people who have $500,000 to invest in real estate <laughs> emigrating to America, correct? <laughs> right, yeah. The program's primarily used by Chinese investors. The infrastructure is built as such that there's large pools of new middle class and rich Chinese investors who who would like like to get onto that fast track to to move to the US. Yeah, so they they needed to refinance a $250 million loan there also to take cash out for themselves, but also to pay back those Chinese investors. And the controversy around that uh, immigration program and the Trump administration generally really slowed them down in trying to find that loan. Laurent Morali, the president, told us they've since found somebody to refinance them there. He didn't tell us who, though. But did Trump put any money in that building, or is this one of the deals where he just licenses his name and that's used to sell the business? It's... So- sell the property. It's been our understanding that he was, it was always a, um, a licensing deal and not an equity deal. So yeah, no money in the project. Caleb, last question. What, what are the open questions right now? What, what do you want to know that you don't know? And what do we need to know? I mean, what here is, is politically and publicly relevant in terms of what happens with this building? Yeah. Um, so with 666, we, we reported a lot of new places they had sought funds. It's probably not the case that that's all of the places where they sought funds. There's probably others. And they still need to find either a co-investor for their big new shiny tower plan or somebody to uh, refinance their debt on the building. So the family company is going to continue to look for those solutions. And if you're concerned about conflicts of interest, um, it'll be interesting to see where that solution comes from and what ties they have to U.S. policy either foreign or domestic. And there's a deadline here, and it's before the next presidential election, right? Because this mortgage note comes due. Yeah, it's due February 2019. So when do they need, I don't know how long it takes to, to raise a couple billion dollars to knock a building down at Fifth Avenue. What's the what's the deadline? I mean, they, they better <laughs> they better get somebody pretty soon, right? Yeah, well, when we when we went to go interview Laurent Morali in um, in the building, 666 Fifth Avenue, actually, he told us that's that's a lifetime in real estate finance. And they're they're more than comfortable with that time horizon. But I think the concern is more on the back end, right? Like they've already gone to a lot of people and nobody have really bit on the plan. So it's not so much how much time they have left as it is who do they have left to ask. I've been speaking about the Kushner family and their building at 666 Fifth Avenue with Caleb Melby of Bloomberg. Caleb, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. 
That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. We're still collecting questions for our special Q&A show with me and Virginia Heffernan. Send questions on Twitter and just hashtag them AskTrumpCast. Send us questions on Twitter with the hashtag AskTrumpCast, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.